He is the author of From Hang Time to Prime Time. We welcome Pete Corrado onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Pete? Not bad, guys. How are you doing? Doing really well. And thanks for coming on to the show. And thanks for um, just sending copies of the book. Um, have it right here. Um, really just fascinating read. Um, must appreciate it for sending it over. And I think it's... Amazing cover, by the way, too. Yeah, I love sure. the cover and the Isn't look of the book. Cover great? I gotta, I gotta say, it's... um. Graphic designer by the name of James Icabelli, uh, who's a freelance uh, artist, graphic designer, uh, designed it. And I think it's amazing. It's actually modeled after a Wheaties box, which I think is pretty, which uh. I think is pretty amazing. Yeah. So I was, uh, it's funny when, you know, there's this whole process when you publish a book, you you review this, you review that. And um, there's always some back and forth. But when my agent and I saw the cover, we were just we were just like, man, this is great. Because you can see that thing from space. It's so colorful and it just pops. So, yeah, I, I, lo- I love that cover. I love the cover. On the subject of that, because um, we've interviewed a bunch of other authors, but we haven't mm-hmm. asked them this. How important is the cover of a book? I mean, what does that go into? Like, how vital is that in terms of kind of finalizing just the final process and everything? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I, I think the cover... I think the cover is really important. I mean, because that's, I mean, that's the first, that's the first thing a person sees, right? When you walk into a bookstore or a library, uh, you know, that's what you, that's what you see. And I think the cover has to summarize everything that the book is about, the essence of the book. And I can't speak for other authors that you've had on the show, but for me, I think the cover is really important as a first time author. Uh, you know, especially as someone who doesn't have maybe the as big a name as a Ben Golliver or um, I'm trying to think who else, you know, a, a Shea Serrano, like having that cover that kind of uh, shows everything the book is about and that pops really. I think that that is a huge that's a difference maker for someone like me. I mean, if you look at that cover, you know, um, the player is holding a hamburger. His shoes are gold. Um, there's it, it kind of it, it encapsulates everything in the book in. In just a few a few great strokes. So yeah, I think I think the cover is massively important. Um, but it's funny we didn't really have a lot of discussions about that. It was just here's the cover, and Louise Fury, my agent, and I saw it. And we thought this looks great. It, this is I mean it just it it completely it's new. It's it's different. I think it frames it as something just beyond a basketball book. That's great, Pete. Um, let's let's get into the book and just mm-hmm. when going through it, I. I think it's very important that like younger fans of the league check this book out because, you know, it's weird. I'm th- I mean, Matt and I, we're, I think we're both, we're both 35, right? I forget our birthdays, Matt, but we're both, we're around the same age. So okay. like, like we said out there, yeah. we're childhood yeah. friends. Yeah. And I just, when growing up watching the league, the history of the league, I just think was like a bigger factor in watching it back in the day, back in the Jordan mm-hmm. days um, yeah. compared to now in which everything's just like social media just so quick highlight after highlight after highlight so can you explain to this younger viewers of the league which you know their introduction to michael jordan was just the last dance can you explain to those um demographic in particular why your book is important to read in terms of the history of the league because yeah that's a that's a, another great question no i mean it is the years that the book covers which is 1975 to 1989 those are the years that led to the nba that you see today um, I mean, really, everything that defines the NBA in terms of how it's marketed, how it's presented on television, how the players are promoted, started really blossomed in that time frame, seventy-five to eighty-nine. And what's 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 what I wanted to do with this book was I wanted to make it entertaining and revealing 
for readers. I think there's a tendency with history when you talk to, when you talk to anyone who's under, I'm 43. So anyone, I think when you mention the word history, it's almost like, it's almost like a four letter word, like, oh, history, oh, here we go. And, but what's fascinating is that those years were just, they were so, they were so, um, what's what I'm looking for? There was so much happening. They were so explosive. I mean, you have, look, you have the, the ABA merging in quotes with the NBA. That's a big thing. That brings Julius Irving, which completely revolutionizes how, how the game is played. You have a wide open game. You have a wide open game with three point with eventually three pointers and a, and a game that's more, you know, less reliant on the, on post players that starts in the seventies. You have Michael Jordan come along in 1984. You have magic and Larry uh, coming in 79. You have TV with CBS really, really utilizing what the league was all about. Um, you know, coming, you know, coming into its own, working with David Stern. There are so many important things that happen in that time frame that we that that have just become overlooked. And that's not, that's not to blame. That's not to say that anyone should be like boning up on 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 on, on their NBA history going to newspapers.com. But you're right. There's so much that happens in it now. I mean, we are bombarded with things just by in an hour, like. The, the, the Bucks and, and Hawks are going to tip off in like 30 minutes, right? Our Twitter feeds are going to be flooded with things, with, with replays and hot takes and jokes. We're, we're not going to remember what happened through five hours ago. So a book like this is extremely important because it provides context to what you enjoy now. And I think I, I wrote in such a way where it's accessible and it's fun, and you might learn a thing or two. And But those, but those years... Yeah, those years to me are absolutely fascinating. And I don't think they've really been written about in, in a book like this. So I think that's why my book, my book is my, my, I'm still talking about this book six months after it, after it came out. Pete, you have a wonderful timeline of, of notable events. I mean, right, right at the start of your book, mm-hmm. uh, you, you mentioned some of those as, as yeah. you're answering Justin's question there. What, what do you think is the maybe single moment or, or maybe two or three moments that really made the NBA into a legitimate sports league, like from, from kind of more obscurity yeah. into the mainstream? No, I think, I, I think Larry O'Brien uh, taking the commissioner position in 1975 uh, is absolutely huge to the future of the league. And I think it doesn't get talked about nearly enough because, we, because David Stern was such a dynamic leader for 30 years. Um, but Larry O'Brien, his predecessor, was equally important for for a couple of reasons. First, in the the NBA, uh, the NBA in the mid 1970s was nowhere near the league that it is now. It didn't really have, enjoy the public profile. It didn't have the pizzazz that it has now. And you know, there there, there was, I mean, the league had had always been talked about its potential. Oh, it's the sport of the 70s. Oh, it's going to be big in five years. Hiring Larry O'Brien was absolutely crucial because it was it was it signified. To the, to the greater public that the league meant business, that it was serious. Because Larry O'Brien was not somebody who was co- uh, comf- comfortable with the owners. He wasn't someone who worked in, in PR for the league. He was somebody who was um, who was a big deal. I mean, he was part of JFK's White House. He was a member of LBJ's cabinet. He was on the cover of Time Magazine. So to, ha- to hire someone of that public importance in 1975 to, to, the, to the NBA – was was headline making news for all the right reasons, and the other important thing about Larry O'Brien is that he hires David Stern full time, and then he allows David Stern to do his to do his thing for the next five or six years, 
as his apprentice. So David Stern is meeting with the owners. He's meeting with the players. He's doing the television deals. So when David Stern takes over in 1984, officially, he already has a five-year head start. So I think one the 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 what the easily one of the top two three moments that you mentioned just now, Matt, is Larry O'Brien's um, deciding to take take on the commissioner role. The other the other and there are other couple of things I don't get talked about that I don't get talked about enough. I think uh, the second thing would be CBS Sports um, really really improving their coverage of the NBA back in nineteen in the early nineteen eighties. Ted Shaker uh, became the executive producer for the coverage, and he completely overhauled how the games were covered. You know, you know, it was more about personalities, dramatic angles, um, the stuff that you see now that we just sort of take for granted. That was all sort of, that came in vogue uh, under Ted Shaker's watch. Uh, the third thing that I think really is, a moment I think is really important that doesn't get talked about enough is would be the McDonald's Open because that really signified the importance of other countries to the NBA success. That was proof that the NBA could be exported to other countries and there and that there was a viewership there um the mcdonald's open for those who don't remember and if you do that's no problem um if you don't remember it's no problem it was a it was a uh, a 14 tournament that was held uh in milwaukee with i think real madrid um the bucks and a couple of other a couple and i think uh, the uh the ussr team a few other a few of, the, of those teams it was like a round robin tournament that was held before the season started and it wasn't a big deal here in the U.S., but overseas it did big business, and it cemented the NBA's reputation overseas. And that did that meant the world going forward, literally and figuratively, because the NBA could export uh, the game worldwide, and it had permission to do that. So, yeah, to me, those are the three things that I think don't get talked about enough, but are but are talked about pretty thoroughly in the book. Covering the the era that you covered in your book. Was was that a point in time? So so we have these narratives like mm-hmm. like present day. You know, not not to bring up kind of a, a rough topic, but you know, famously in headlines now, it's with head injuries in football. Yeah. You know, moms are holding their kids away mm-hmm. from from playing football. So the assumption would be that you know there would be less high quality athletes, or, or maybe mm-hmm. the most elite athletes wouldn't be going to the NFL in in the future. You know, maybe twenty mm-hmm. years down the road. Mm-hmm. In this era in the NBA, what was the player pool like for the NBA, and what was the caliber of of athletes? I mean, we're we're like top tier athletes. Um, I mean, we know like Dr. J, for example, yeah. who's who's yeah. prominent in your book, an incredible athlete. Nobody would doubt that. Mm-hmm. But what was the talent pool like that? And um, did you kind of get a sense of the interest in the general public and and like kids growing up for playing basketball? It's a really good question. You know, I think it's funny. You, you watch, I, mean, I watch the NBA now, and and I think this answers your question. These athletes are these these athletes are just they're at an elite level. I mean, totally. they are just they. I mean, you cannot be average in build or in conditioning and play an eighty-two game season in NBA. It's just not possible anymore. The game moves too quickly and. The, the 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 players are too fast, too strong. It just doesn't work. So, you know, there might be one or two exceptions, but the but the days of a plucky Rudy type, you know, breaking the mm-hmm. lineup, that's not going to happen. I think, but I think the reason why a lot of people a lot of people like the seventies and eighties is because I think that was the last era where you could have sort of an everyman 
as a star. The conditioning wasn't wasn't as big a factor. The um, you know there wasn't this this whole the AAU system where you're sort of geared to become a basketball player and mm-hmm. you you work toward that your entire you know your entire childhood that didn't exist. So you had a, an array of player uh, you had an array of players that were just that looked mortal that looked regular so i mean if you look at if you look at clips of let's say moses malone or magic johnson or larry bird they're very skinny they're not ripped i mean michael jordan was i mean for a lot of people if you lifted weights that was an impediment because you didn't want to be too you do want to be over overdeveloped so i think a lot and i think the reason why a lot of people like the 70s and 80s is because you had there was more there was a, a slight there was more that ordinary man aspect to it where, a little more relatable, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, you know, a guy, I mean, you could look at George Gervin, who was six foot seven and 150 pounds soaking wet, and be like, oh, I, I kind of look like that guy. I could maybe play. Or someone like Billy Pulse, the whopper, who was, you know, looked like your, looked like my dad a little bit, you know, a bit of a gut, shaggy haircut. And I think as time went on, the athletes became better. There was more interest in the game. Um, you know, and the the, you know, the 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 diets got better, the training got better, our understanding of physiology and anatomy got better. So the so you had to become an extreme athlete. But that's not to say, as you just mentioned, that the NBA didn't have great athletes at that time. I mean, you know, Dr. J was a was a was a wonderful athlete. I mean, that's a, that's a prime example. I mean, the athlete. I mean, to to play forty eight minutes of basketball, and to play and, and to just be able to do the things that someone like Dr. J or David Thompson um, or even Larry Bird did still requires a tremendous, a, tre- a tremendous amount of a number of physical skills. It's just that the pa- I think the packaging for those skills has changed over time. Um, you know, whereas, you know, again, if you were, you know, again, if you're a six, a six foot eight, 190 pound guy, is not going to survive into that today's NBA? He might that person might have survived in the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, does that answer your question? I I, I I feel I may have danced around a little bit. No, absolutely. And I think uh, some of the things you you said there are kind of proved by the popularity of Steph Curry. You know, yeah. when he really had his explosion. A, a big reason is you know like like I'm roughly Steph Curry's height. I, I think he's got like maybe an inch on me, maybe yeah. half an inch. But uh, you know, you see something like that, and you're like, wow, guy guy who's six three is is putting it down. Yeah, um, but if you look at Steph, I mean. You've seen those dribbling skills that he does, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't I mean, have near that. <laughs> there's always that's the that's the I mean, even that's the wonderful part about the NBA is that the is that with, with any sport is that the packaging can sometimes be can sometimes can sometimes deceive you, and but the, but but those play but the players are still compensating it in in other ways. So someone like Steph Steph Curry has that great quickness. He has that great body control, and, and you know he also you know, probably shot 10,000 jumpers a week mm-hmm. and just became, you know, a freak at it. And, but that's, but yeah, but I got, but there, I don't think maybe I'm miss, maybe I'm not, maybe, you know, there, maybe I'm missing someone, but you, but that kind of player is, is rare where it's just like, yeah, okay. That, you know, like Fred Van Vliet, I, you know, I could maybe, you know, I, that could, that could be me if I lost 25 pounds and wasn't in my mid forties. It's, it's a, yeah, the the game the, there's I'm it's going to be I'm it's going to be curious to see how the game develops in the next twenty years and what kind of what kind of athletes are going to be on the court if it's going to be shorter taller but the at but the but the 
but the athleticism is just is going to be untouchable. I think. I think the NBA has the best athletes in the world. Um, to your point, Pete. Um, yeah. To your discussion, I, I think another player that comes to mind is Allen Iverson, mm-hmm. um, just because he brought a, a new element of just hip hop culture. Yeah, and that was related relatable to a lot of players he's just an icon yeah. still now influencing mm-hmm. so many players and also his style was relatable to just playing pickup ball like on the court so yeah, i think that's absolutely. that was another player um to that point yeah the, your book also focuses i thought this is very interesting mm-hmm. on marvin gay and this yeah. the national anthem mm-hmm. and i just wanted to ask you it, it, it seems like the NBA compared to Major League Baseball and the NFL is kind of always going to be that outsider league. It kind of has its own identity. And I just want to ask you, do you think the NBA will ever be that number one prominent sport just because it has kind of its own – I don't know. Do, I, I don't want to say it's racial, but just the identity of the league is always kind of – I don't know against the grain compared to major league baseball and compared to the NFL where it's so stoked in tradition, so stoked and kind of this Americana sort of speak, whereas yeah. the NBA is kind of, I don't know, rebellious and kind of, I don't know, not only just from an entertainment standpoint, from its players, but just also its fans too. So I just wanted to ask you just from kind of, you know, your focus of the book from the seventies and eighties to yeah. now in terms of the league, um, just being more in, in a national spotlight. Do you think it'll eventually uh, be that number one sport in the United States? Or do you think it'll always kind of be in that kind of football baseball shadow, so to speak? Well, I think, well, that's a, I mean, you guys are asking really good questions. So thank you for that. That, that, you know, this has been a, pleasure to do so far um i don't i i don't i think i don't think baseball i think basketball is overtaking baseball in america i i think baseball is still stuck in the 1960s in a lot of ways um it has forever struggled to cater to the youth market especially um especially minorities i mean it seems like every year there's some, there's someone wringing their hands about, Oh, we need to get more, you know, more Latinos and more blacks and more involved in the game. And then nothing gets done about it. So I think, so I think baseball is, has sort of suffocated on its own tradition. Um, And I, and I'm speaking as someone who loves baseball, who, you know, grew up a Mets fan. I was a baseball fan before a basketball, before I became a basketball fan. I think the NFL is, probably going to be the number one sport because it has the importance behind it where every game matters. You have 16 games, every game matters. It's one. And it's, 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 it, and it turns your Sunday into a, basically to a holiday. You get your friends together. You have, you, you know, you sit down, you watch the games. It, it, people center their, their, their days around their football teams. You know, look at tailgating, uh, look at the Super Bowl. I mean, Super Bowl parties are just, you know, it's almost like Christmas time. Um, I think basketball, or the NBA, I should say, I hope it becomes the number one sport. I don't think it will because it can't compete with the immediacy and the importance of football. I do think that it's only, getting, it's only going to get more popular. Here's why. And this speaks to your point, Justin, which I thought was really well observed. Back in 1983 with Marvin Gaye's anthem, People lost their shit. Like, you know, they they heard they heard this this song. It's like, what the hell is this? Is this is this is he scatting? Is he singing? What the hell? 
And if you read the newspaper coverage from that time, everybody, you have every columnist wringing their hands over, oh, the anthem, oh, Marvin Gaye slandered it. I mean, the, I mean, the, the Lakers got a lot of phone calls and letters about the anthem and how it offended them. Now it's par for the course. I mean, Fergie butchered mm -hmm. the anthem three years ago, <laughs> and we all laughed our asses off that. It's like, well, it's hilarious. So wh wh why am I bringing that up? It's because eventually what becomes, eventually, I, I truly believe this. I think in America, I think we become, we, become, we become increasingly tolerant, especially when it comes to things that are entertainment, because it's, because we just, we get used to it. We get, we hopefully get more enlightened. It becomes part of the scene. It doesn't become like, I don't know. I mean, rap back in 1983 was this exotic thing that people just held in disdain. Now, you, know, you go to any wedding, bar mitzvah, graduation party, people are spinning rap hits. So I think that understanding takes time to develop. And I think it's the same thing with the NBA. I think at some point in 20 years, the more people, more people are going to look what happened in the bubble with the social protests, social justice protests, and they'll, and they're going to they're going to they're going to find an admiration in that and a and they're going to really appreciate that. But right now, there's more. There's there's it's it's very much back and forth. But it takes time for these things to become normalized. It becomes time for the, it takes time for these things to become part of the atmosphere. And basketball has always had that problem because it is a majority African American sport. And I think there are people that are always going to be uncomfortable with that. But there are going to be fewer and fewer people who are uncomfortable with that. I don't think it's ever going to reach the point. I hope it exceeds it takes over football, but I think that I think that again, football's immediacy makes that hard to do, and I don't think we're I don't think we're ever going to get to that point where people are just going to be able to watch a basket. We're not going to the point where everyone watches a basketball game and just watches a, a bloody basketball game where they don't care about where they're able to just maybe compartmentalize the political parts of it or the social parts of it. Or they're able to just understand that these these men that are protesting are black men who have problems as soon as they step outside the arena. They, they you know, again, Kyrie Irving or um, or LeBron James when he steps out of an arena has the same burdens and the same problems as as any African American man, I believe. You know, it's just that we we think that oh well, he's a millionaire, he's in this bubble, he's fine. He's not fine. Fewer, but that's the problem. There's that lack of understanding that I think is going to hold back basketball's popularity ultimately. But I hope that in 20 years, when we're all talking about this, that basketball is the number one sport because people have have been able are able to be are able to have a better understanding of the players and what they're watching, and not just react out of fear or um, or ignorance. But I, I don't. But I don't know. I don't think. I don't. I don't want to be naive. I don't see that happening anytime soon. But I would like to think it. Ha it would. Ha it will happen before, you know, um, before I, I uh, pass up to the moral coil. Go ahead, Matt. Um, I, I wanted to touch on. You know, you bring up with Marvin Gaye. I mean, of course, you have to consider pop culture of of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you also, and I know you did a lot of research on like the history of hip hop for the book, and yeah. um, and <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I was just wondering if you could kind of describe to us kind of how that 
that sort of marriage went down that I, I think caused momentum for NBA to be um, one of the one of the drivers in pop culture and kind of how it developed from counterculture into mainstream pop culture. Uh, and I, I know there's so many factors in that. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, Jordan helps bring the NBA mainstream big time. Oh, yeah. Um, but can you just kind of describe some of the nuance with that, some of the factors that were going on that that drove NBA to the mainstream? Wow, yeah. I'm 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 gonna try and keep it short because that last answer was a bit of a doozy. Um <laughs> sure. Uh <laughs> no, I mean that's a I think with there are a couple of factors with that. I think the NBA, well, yeah, Jordan's a huge part of that. Because I think with, with Jordan, so many elements come together with him. He is, he becomes the world's most, he becomes one of the world's most identifiable people. He becomes arguably the world's biggest celebrity. Oh, yeah. On top of that, under his umbrella, and there, there's, there's a lot under that umbrella, but let me, let me start over. <laughs> this is a really good question. Okay, so Jordan comes in, and he is he has he's an amazing basketball player. He is classically handsome, and he has no rough edges. So under that umbrella, a lot of the hip hop elements fall neatly into place. So that means sneakers, wardrobe, um, you know, um, even the game itself, and the elements that attach itself to the game, including hip hop. So Jordan coming in brings that all into this very easily to market safe for middle America umbrella. So I think Jordan is a huge part in that, but also keep in mind this rap or hip hop, whatever you want to call it becomes more mainstream, becomes more like rock and roll. It really became it, rap really became very popular when, um, when Larry Smith, who was a, um, who worked for Def Jam started to incorporate guitar licks into rap songs. So like run DMC, the Beastie Boys, like if you look, those songs that are popular, like let's say Rockbox or um, uh, what is it, um, Walk This Way, mm -hmm. um, they all they all are they all are fashioned like rock songs. There's guitar work, there's a chorus, there's a refrain. So so rap became more mainstream as well. So any so again that that started the ball a little bit too, and then MTV got involved. The OMTV raps, and the other thing too that's very important too is that. Jordan, and, and this is why Jordan was so popular because, you know, kids love a rebel. Okay. So with rap, that was their music. Like mm -hmm. their parents grew up. I mean, my, my parents didn't grow up on rock and roll music because they just, I don't know, they weren't into it, whatever. But <laughs> if you grew up in the eighties, you know, rock and roll was your parents' music. Like mm -hmm. the Beatles were, were like listening to Beethoven if you were growing up in the in the, in the mid early <laughs> 1990s. So rap was your music. It was music that you understood. It was music that was that was that was yours. And it was it was no one else liked it. So that youth market, that that youth market, which is huge, also brought brought rap, brought rap more into the mainstream. And as and as the songs became more more palatable for top 40 radio. Every you know that 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 rolled the ball down the hill. So it's a couple of elements, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's it's amazing now. Like it's you know at at some rap is now like rock was 
back back in back in the eighties, where it's you know where I think at some point my daughter is four, you know, and when she's fourteen or fifteen, you know, I might, I might be talking about I don't know, like Paul's Boutique or you know doggy doggy style, and, and she'll be looking at me like. <laughs> old people's music but it was but like but for but for a teenager at that time it was everything and and justin to your point i thought that's why iverson was so popular because he was you know all those things all that all that culture those albums that manifested himself in alan iverson like you know if you want proof of the, that the nba was a was a hip-hop league Allen Iverson is, is is the proof of that, but Jordan is his precedent for sure. Mm-hmm. Justin, go ahead. I, I've got one more. I definitely want to get to if if we have time for it. But go ahead, Justin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I got one more question, and mm-hmm. and it's about kind of the future of the league because all the stuff you were discussing, and also mm-hmm. just the different experiments that the NBA did back mm-hmm. in the seventies and eighties. I kind of think like the league's kind of doing now with All Star Weekend, just yeah. with the slam dunk contest, mm-hmm. and also other kind of sub leagues too you're seeing kind of two things happening one um the big three um with ice cube which has a huge hip-hop element and then another thing is all these kind of i don't know before the pandemic all these kind of summer leagues happening all these street leagues happening the drew league and all these other leagues etc so i just want to ask you with the nba playing around with like a play-in tournament and you mentioned just the mcdonald's open Mm -hmm. earlier Mm -hmm. what do you think is kind of the future of the nba in terms of evolving the league itself do you think you'll be more of just cooperating with the big three do you think you'll be then participating in these kind of off summer leagues where you see nba players actually play in these leagues hmm. um even though in the off season do you where do you do you have the insight in terms of where do you think the the future of the nba is that you oh. know that's not being discussed in mainstream media oh boy i i mean that's wow if i if i had the answers to that i would be running a consultant a consultant <laughs> firm a cozy firm and not 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 um sure. not, not, not living in a basement here um you know that's a really good that's a really good question. I, I don't I don't know if the NBA is going to go so much into the summer stuff because there's always union considerations. There's sure. the injury. That's something that I think I don't think you're going to see summer stuff so much. I don't. I mean, aside from the summer league, obviously, and, and the big three, but the big three is retired players, and it's that's a different kettle of fish. Um, hmm. I do. Th- I, I. I will. I will say this. I do think you're going to see a push toward international play, more of a push. Um, I really. I really. I mean, if the NFL is talking about you know teams in Mexico and Europe and uh, and other parts of the world, I think that's as inevitable for the NBA. I think the NBA will definitely do something. Will do something like that. I, I, I'm not sure where they're going to put that. Put that. Um, fr- that franchise, but I. I can definitely see that happening you know, in the next 15 to 20 years, uh, you mentioned the playing tournament. I do think that the all-star game weekend is going to be overhauled. Um, oh, I'm sorry, the, the game itself. It, it's really the least important part of all-star game weekend, which sounds ironic since it's, you know, it's all-star game weekend. Um, I, I, you know, a, a couple of people have, have mentioned, you know, a mid-season tournament or something. I think that could be a great thing, kind of get people interested because again, the NBA, NBA season is long. So I think you're going to see something done in the middle of the season to generate interest and to get people talking because that seems to be what the metrics are now. Like, oh, people are talking about this on Twitter or Instagram or wherever. Uh, what that's going to be, I don't know, but a, like a midseason tournament might 
be cool, like to kind of like see, you know, to get seating, you know, to kind of set up seatings for the, for the spring. I think Bill Simmons mentioned that. I think that was a really good idea. Um, but you know, but, but the NBA is always going to do something like they're never going to just sit there. The, the league is never going to sit still. They're never going to just, you know, wipe their hands and think, Oh, I call, we got it. Like we called it a day. No, they're always going to be doing something. What that is, I'm not entirely sure, but I think it's, it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to, it's going to get people talking. I mean, that's what, that's what they do. Um, I, I think the only, I think the curious thing is, I'm curious to your guys' thoughts on this. I, I think the the real push for the NBA would be would be to do more with the WNBA because I think that's really where there's that's an untapped um, league. I think there's a, there's there you know you have a lot of great players there. Players are getting more recognition, and I think that's that to me is where the NBA should put its efforts, like how to bolster that league to get to get more fans to get more interest on both on both sides of the fence. I, I think that's if I were, if I were running the NBA, God forbid. But if I were on the NBA, that's where, I, that's where I'd put my efforts would be toward the WNBA, maybe toward something that's toward the, with the with the midseason for sure. Um, I'm right there with you, Pete. Um, that's something Matt and I have discussed this before oh, we were doing the podcast. Just you know, just talking about the WNBA and it's kind of the the issues with it. I think the pandemic really changed the fabric of yeah. the league because since then, looking at how the league was viewed on social media, just in terms mm-hmm. of something as simple as like a schedule rollout, just in terms of the highlights I've seen, I think we. we We've seen the NBA and its broadcast partners um, take the WNBA more seriously. So I think we're starting to see that now. It's kind of a gradual process, but I do think that they're getting there. I think there's a lot of progress to be made, but I agree with you, Pete, to that point that um, you have to have a a league, a growing league in popularity right there that has tons of potential. Yeah, and you also have have a ton of of girls or or young women that would be interested in that league. They, or, 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 or I don't, know, I don't, I don't know the, the market, the market numbers, but you know, every year more and more girls are getting into sports. There, there, you know, the, there's, there's no longer this, this um, barrier to entry where, where, where a little girl can't play baseball or football or, or, or basketball. And it seems to me like that's who you got to cater to. And there's a giant market there that would, that would just, that would just adore a, you know, a summer basketball league. But I don't know. I mean, it's been 25 years now. Yeah, almost 25, just about 25 years. And it seems like the I think I think you're right, Justin. I think the, I think the NBA is finally learn is finally learning just how to market this. Like just like let's get clips on Twitter. Like let's. But but there are things that are so silly. Like um, who is it? Brit- Brittany De La Creta just wrote a really good piece for Vice about how a lot of the teams, the PA announcers, can't pronounce the players' last names. So like. If you're not in, if you're not taking care of your own house, like that doesn't bode well. I I, I don't know. That that would be my that would be my first order of business would be to to really get the WNBA to another level. Totally, I, I think that's great. And you know, they're already married financially speaking. Yeah. You know, the NBA mm-hmm. supports them. You know, I, I wonder if something like starting. You know, in in cities where you have both a, a men's and women's franchise, you know, doing like a double header or or things like that to yeah. you know keep like the people that came for the NBA game, you know, let them let them stick yeah. around uh, for the women's game. Wow. You know, there's there's got to be some way to do I think it. That's a great idea. I mean, I, I think yeah, I'm, I'm trying to interrupt Matt. This is really that's a great point, and I've I've thought about this because people have asked me, you know, about oh, well, do you watch the NBA? Do you what do you want to see improve? And I think well, you know, the NBA. I mean. The NBA doesn't need my input. 
uh, <laughs> I, I think they're really good at reading the tea leaves and and rolling with with the times. To me, the WNBA is, is where you need to put the efforts in. And one of the ideas that I thought of, I, there are two things that I thought about the WNBA, and, and one you just mentioned was stagger it with the with the NBA schedule. Like maybe you have maybe on maybe you have NBA games like three days a week, and the other four days you have WNBA games, or maybe you have a maybe have a double header. Um, because that way you you gain interest that way. I think the other thing that the, that the WNBA needs, and this is sort of taking a page from the Larry O'Brien handbook, is hire a name as the president. Like get somebody who mm. people are going to be like, holy shit, they hired her or they hired him. Like that to me would sh- would 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 be would be it would be a big step forward. And it could be any. It, I mean, I'm not going to you know offer names, but. That to me, I think the NBA, the WNBA needs a headline grabber. And I think getting a commissioner who is a person of importance, like Larry O'Brien was, would be a big first step toward that. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, that's the thing. I can't even tell you who the WNBA commissioner is now. Um, you I can't know. remember her name, but yeah. <laughs> Kathy Ingerberg, I think. Yeah, there you um, go. Yeah. So I, I agree with you, Pete, just because I'm, I'm a big mixed martial arts fan. Mm-hmm. And Dana White, and just knowing the history of that, he was so relentless. And yeah. he would do any interview mm-hmm. just to the mountaintops, pushing the sport when no one gave a crap about the UFC. And yeah. he was, you need a big cheerleader. And I think you're exactly right. A lot of the commissioners previously, they're kind of, I don't know, they're in this business type of forum yeah. where you don't, they're more operating the league as a business as opposed yeah. to actually liking the sports. I totally exactly. Yeah. And they come and they come and they, like and they come from the, the and they come from the NBA. Like you know, I think Val mm-hmm. Ackman was from the NBA. Um, Donna Orinder was from the was from the was from the NBA. And I don't know, like that's a lateral move. Like if you spend 15 years at a company and then you're shifted to another part of the company, it's it's kind of it, you know it, it you, you get fatigued. I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, Donna Orinder, I, mean, I talked to her for the book, and she was the same way. Like, she had spent like eight years under David Stern, then another like three or four. The WNBA, you get tired. I, I, I mean, I, but I do think, yeah, you definitely need a cheerleader. You, you need somebody who's going to talk. You need a commissioner. You're right. You're right, Justin. Who's going to talk to every blog, every podcast, like who's just going to be a, 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 you know, a, the, an advocate for the league and for its players. And that person needs to be someone who's a name and who is dynamic. And I think hiring someone from outside the family um, would help. I mean, or, or hiring somebody who isn't so tied into basketball per se would be an immense help. I mean, I don't know. I mean, can you imagine if they, if the WNBA hired someone and this is never going to happen, but like if they hired someone like, I don't know, like um, if they hired Michelle Obama or they hired, uh, you know, an Elizabeth Warren, like someone who, has real leadership qualities who is, who just people are going to just like listen to mm-hmm. that would be, that would be, that would be an amazing thing to me. I mean, and I don't, I, I the only concern I would have is would the hire Trump the product, the, the players and their ability. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, and that's, you know, that's, that's a dicey situation, but I think it might be time for that. I think, I mean, these things take time. The, the league is 25 years old. That's in a, in a sports league, you know, that's, that's a baby. So it's, but something needs to be done, I think. Yeah. It might be worth taking the risk um, anyway. See, see sure. if it shakes things up. Uh, Pete, really appreciate your time and your perspective. Do you have time for one last question? Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I mean, I'll, the first like five minutes of the Hawks uh, Bucks game will probably just be, uh, 
uh, pregame stuff. So yeah, I'm, but fire away, guys. I'm um, all right. All yours. So you uh, you mentioned his name. I, I wanted to make sure I, I asked a question about David Stern. So <laughs> yeah. full disclosure, I I'm a David Stern apologist. In, in yeah. my opinion, um, you know his his last decade or so as the NBA commissioner. Although I, I think. A lot of us, yes, are are sad the Seattle Supersonics aren't around anymore. I, mm-hmm. I understand that. But I, I think in many ways, David Stern got an unfair rap towards uh, the end of his tenure there. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, you, you did over 300 interviews for this book, and you mentioned an attitude that he was just so beloved yeah. by people around him. Can you speak to that? What were some of the reasons he was so beloved and what was maybe some of the the side of David Stern that we didn't get to see all the time? Yeah, I mean, Stern was beloved because he cared as much, if not more, than his employees. I mean, he was, we've all had shitty bosses. I, I've had my share. And, sure. you know, and, you know, he was not, you know, we, we've, had, we've had the boss who, Comes in at ten thirty, takes his lunch at eleven, takes his or her lunch at eleven thirty. They're out by four. If you hear from if you hear from them, it's only because you fucked up on something. But David Stern was all in, and he cared about the NBA more than anybody else. And that enthusiasm was infectious. And he was also somebody who 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 drove his employees to be better because he knew more than everybody. So a big thing that David Stern would do is he would go into your office and say, you know, he'd be, he'd bring up a, he would, he would bring up a, a problem. He knew the answer to that problem. He knew what the concern was, but he wanted to hear how you were going to handle it. And if you bluffed or you, you gave him some bullshit answer, he was on you and he would just eviscerate you, but mm. it, but it made everyone better. And for a league that was scrappy and just really starting to feel its oats, they need David Stern was an absolute ally because he cared as much more, he cared as, as much as anybody. And again, he would chew you out and he would and he would just, you know, again, pull you in his office and just give you the Bobby Knight treatment. But he was somebody that if you if you if you were, I guess, a loyal soldier to him, if you did the work, if you cared. He would be he would be there for you in any way, shape, or form. I mean, there's a story in the book with uh, Rick Welch, who just retired from the Golden State Warriors. Uh, he started off working for the NBA, and Rick Welch was in charge of basically selling um, sponsorships to the NBA, which back in 1982, 1983 was like selling, you know, ice to Eskimos. No one wanted to be a part of the, <laughs> of the NBA. So Rick Wells would come in and just get door slammed in his face, get no thank you, get lost. He'd come back to his apartment and he would just he would just be in tears. But David Stern would call him and be like, "Hey, you know, we're gonna do this. We're gonna get through this, buddy. We got this. Like, come on, we we got this." And he would and you know the next day Rick Wells would come into David Stern's office, and David Stern would have like a stack of magazines and clippings. Like, let's try these three guys. Like, they look like they might be interested. He. David Stern inspired everyone because he was just so because he had he had a vision for the league and he was so passionate about it and he cared. It wasn't just talk. It wasn't like oh yeah we're gonna do this we're gonna do that and then you know he goes off and plays golf you know three times a week. He cared so deeply about it and back and in the in the nineteen eighties, that care that commitment was absolutely crucial to the NBA success. So David Stern, I'm right there with you, Matt. I, I think he is. I think he's the best sports commissioner of all time. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I truly believe that. Um, 
Uh, and again, I mean, I talked to people who love David Stern, but I talked to a couple of people who wanted to bury David Stern in a shallow grave. They hated him. Like <laughs> he was demanding. You know, he was he was somebody who was, you know, he was he would he could be bossy. He was opinionated. He was not somebody who would just, you know, let things lie. And that rubbed some people the wrong way. But there are dozens of people who I talk to who who loved David Stern, who considered him to be a, to, considered him to be a, a second father, who were just, you know, who just saw something in that man that they want, that made, that made them want to be great. And that's the thing about David Stern at his best before the dress code, before the, you know, the aversion of the, to the uh, underclassmen go into the draft before all that stuff, David Stern at his best, cared about the envy more than anybody else and he inspired everyone around him to be great and if you look at the people that worked under david stern and there are a lot of people worked under david stern the array of people that the number of people that that have enjoyed success after david stern after their term in the nba is incredible you have rick welts um you know val ackerman i just mentioned was commissioner of the wmba uh donna orander was commissioner of the wmba um you know, um, um, Bill Jemis ran Marvel. Like these are not people that went off and then like, you know, went off, quit and then like worked at Sam's club or like, you know, an account, a CPA firm. A lot of these men and women went on, went on to do great things um, in, in business after, after working for David Stern. And I think that is the, te- that is the testament to his greatness. It's not only the league, the league that he left behind, but the fact that you talk to people about him and they, they you know, talk, again, people were more than happy to me talk about David Stern, even though he chewed, even though, you know, he wasn't a pleasant man all the time. He was somebody that just that was held a special place in their hearts because he let them he gave them the freedom to be great and he drove them to be great. Awesome, Pete. Well, we so appreciate your perspective, appreciate your time, and thank you so much for joining us. You guys make sure you go pick up the book. Please. From hang time to Absolutely. prime time. There's yes. that beautiful cover. Yes. Um, right behind you. Yes. <laughs> please, uh, please plug uh, the book and anything else that you're working sure. on, Pete, ah, and where we can follow um, you. Yeah. Well, I think Twitter is where I, I spend too many of my hours. So I'm at Pete <laughs> That's P E T C R O A, two T's as a Thomas O. Um, that's where I post all my work. That's where I'm trying to make jokes and be somewhat funny. Uh, so that's, that's where I'm, I'm, I do most of my damage. Uh, buying the book, you can buy from any major retailer, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Please shop local if you can. Um, if you buy the book from, um, from Odyssey Bookstore in Ithaca, New York, that's odysseybookstore.com. Um, I'll autograph it, and the store will ship it to you, any, will ship it to you for $5 extra. Um, if you buy the book, um, and like it, and I hope you do. Uh, I'm happy to sign a book plate and mail it to you free of charge. Um, yeah, you know, if you leave a review on Amazon or you know, Goodreads or Friendster, if they're still around, um, that'd be appreciated too. But yeah, that's um, that's the gist of it. Um, as for uh, another, as for other things that I'm working on right now, I'm just freelancing, working on some stories, keeping busy, which is good. Um, and I'm working on a, uh, I'm working on a proposal for a second book. So we'll see where that takes me. 
Great, Pete. Well, we appreciate you coming on to the show. Please check out the book again, From Hang Time to Prime Time. Pete, thank you very much for joining us. Really, My pleasure, guys. Thank you so much for having me. It was This was great.